Good evening, Kalispera. Can everyone hear me? Uh, thank you all so much for coming. Um, I am thrilled and somewhat unbelieving um, <laughs> that I am standing here before you today. And it's wonderful to be here with um, so many friends, um, old teachers, uh, publishers, fellow candidates, um, family members. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who grew up in Georgia, but whose grandparents lived in Kentucky. At holidays, her family would drive up to Kentucky through forests and past streams and waterfalls that trickled through limestone hills. The water over time eroded great networks of caves in the limestone and the pure limestone filtered water became an important ingredient in Kentucky bourbon. One hot, bright summer day, when the girl was four or five or maybe six, her family visited Mammoth Cave, a national park whose eponymous network of limestone halls and caverns has been in continuous human use for at least 5,000 years and it is still being explored to this day. It's the longest known network of caves in the world. Her little sister was a toddler and was deemed too small for the tasking tour, which lasted two hours and involved a long gradual descent and at the end, a vertical climb of over 500 stairs on a twisting metal staircase with open risers. The descent to the gloom was pretty easy, easy enough, but let me tell you that climbing out was a doozy, as some Roman poet might have said. Uh, the sister, who was a toddler, was left having a complete screaming meltdown in the bright sun. The exasperated mother was there with the toddler, and the little girl and her father set out on the long tour. They would cross bottomless pits on flimsy bridges, squeeze through fat man's misery, stoop down through tall man's misery, or the father did, the skinny little girl probably slipped through with no problem. They wondered at the colonnades of stalactites and stalagmites. They passed a lake dubbed Lethe and rivers called Echo and Styx and gazed up into the star chamber a dome 189 feet high that gave the impression to visitors that they are seeing the night sky. Um, Emerson describes it in his illusions. On arriving at what is called the star chamber, our lamps were taken from us by the guide and extinguished or put aside. And on looking upwards, I saw or seemed to see the night heaven thick with stars glimmering more or less brightly over our heads and even what seemed a comet flaming among them. I don't remember if 
there was mention made of the enslaved African-American Stephen Bishop, um, who in 1838 um, was, began guiding people through the cave. He was the first person to make a map of the cave. He was, in fact, um, Emerson's guide. Um, he called it a grand, gloomy, and peculiar place. In fact, there is a book of poems by a Kentucky poet, David McCombs, called Ultima, Th Ultima Thule, which is about Stephen Bishop and also about Davis McCombs, who was himself a guide um, in Mammoth Cave. Um, Stephen's, uh, Stephen Bishop had been purchased along with the cave and several other people by a Dr. Gorin, um, who later, right basically the last year of his life, uh, freed Stephen Bishop. Um, he rem reminisced of Stephen, that Stephen was a self-educated man, a fine genius, a great fund of wit and humor, with some little knowledge of Latin and Greek, and much knowledge of geology, but his great talent was a perfect knowledge of man. So the reason why the cave bears a lot of these classical names, Lethe and Styx, is because of Stephen Bishop. Um, in fact, he taught himself to read and write when visitors like Emerson would come to the cave, they liked to write their names in smoke on the walls of the cave. And he started asking them, what do these letters mean and how can I do this? And taught himself basically from there, including some Latin and Greek. At the start of the tour, or maybe the end, this was a long time ago, there was a sort of zoo of native fauna of the cave, some of them endemic to the cave including a tank of the glassy cave fishes that had evolved to be blind and see-through, of cave shrimps, and there was an exhibit of bats. These might have been taxidermied, because I don't remember bats fluttering around in this exhibit, 13 species of which make use of the cave, some for their hibernaculum, although all of the bats are in decline, many because of white nose syndrome. The guano, that the bats deposit in the cave is an essential nutrient for the cave's ecosystem. Among the bats of the park are the little brown bat, the big brown bat, the tri-colored bat, the seminal bat, and my favorite, Raffinesque's big-eared bat. It's my favorite because it is adorable and charismatic, but also because Raffinesque is the most interesting per person you have probably never heard of, he was born in Constantinople of Levantine parents, um, ended up in Kentucky, was a friend of John James Audubon, and invented or wrote about a theory of evolution a bit before Darwin. Of these infernal crepuscular creatures, only the bats regularly passed back and forth from the night sky above to the skyless gloom below. Hermes' psychopomp is properly their, their patron divinity. Down, 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 as Alice thinks, falling into Wonderland. At the end of the long downward winding tour, you climbed the staircases up and up and up. The staircases had great gaps in it, big enough for a small person to slip through. The adult behind me unhelpfully told me it would be better to keep my eyes on my shoes. It was on that day that I developed a fear of heights, or more properly, a terror of depths, and a fascination with underworlds and wonderlands and afterworlds, 
which are, after all, real places opening and branching, imbricating and turning, never to be fully explored beneath our feet, and also an affinity for bats. I have a poem by that name. Not sure what year this was. It might have been 1974 or a year or two earlier, which is the same year that the philosopher Thomas Nagel published his famous essay on consciousness and perception and the mind-body problem, which is called, What is it like to be a bat? Um, in it, he writes, I have chosen bats instead of wasps or flounders, because if one travels too far down the phylogenetic tree, this is a little speciesist, um, people gradually shed their faith that there is experience there at all. Bats, although more closely related to us than those other species, in fact, um, bats are more closely related to primates than they are to mice, um, nevertheless present a range of activity and a sensory apparatus so different from ours that the problem I want to pose is exceptionally vivid, even without the benefit of philosophical reflection, anyone who has spent some time in an enclosed space with an excited bat knows what it is to encounter a fundamentally alien form of life. Clearly, he had been in a room with a bat. I've said that the essence of the belief that bats have experienced is that there is something that it is like to be a bat. Now that we know that most bats perceive the external world primarily by sonar or echolocation, detecting the reflections from objects within the range of their own rapid, subtly modulated, high-frequency shrieks. Their brains are designed to correlate the outgoing impulses with the subsequent echoes, and the information thus acquired enables bats to make precise discriminations of distance, size, shape, motion, and texture comparable to those we make by vision. But bat sonar, though clearly a form of perception, is not similar in its operation to any sense that we possess. And there is no reason to suppose that it is subjectively like anything we can experience or imagine. This appears to create difficulties for the notion of what it is like to be a bat. Um, also in the essay, he introduces another alien form of life, a Martian coming to Earth, um, who, how is the Martian going to describe things on Earth and so forth. I think that is probably what triggers the Martian School of Poetry. I might be wrong about that. Um, uh, where there's the school of poets who are trying to describe things in almost this metaphysical sense of as strangely as possible to kind of estrange our idea of what we're perceiving. Um, the essay, as far as I know, did not cause a school of bat poets. This is not Nagel now, this is me. Um, bats are mammals, they are closely related to us. Um, so there are some things I think that we can understand about batness. They nurse their young like us. The mother-pup bond is in some ways very similar, even to the point of mother ease. Um, I think this was recently um, published that, um, you know, when mothers speak to babies, um, our voices tend to rise in pitch, and we're like, oh, what a cute little baby. Um, so bats also do this, although some bats are already quite shrill, they lower their voices to the babies. Oh, what a cute little baby. Um, bats fly, which we only do in dreams or machines. Um, some of the biggest differences are they hang upside down, they're mostly nocturnal, they hibernate, and the use of sonar. 
Um, so sonar is very diff different from how we receive most of our visual information since light comes in at the eyes and receive it passively. Sorry, John Dunn, we do not shoot out eye beams that twist with other eye beams. Um, bats speak to listen. They call to elicit a response. They utter to receive. It is by sounds of things that they determine their shape and size, direction and velocity. They explore by singing and by listening. And in this way, perhaps, they do have some things in common with how poets perceive the world. So, had Thomas Nagel, or the, little, oh, or the little girl for that matter, read or had read to her in the girl's case, a children's book published 10 years before in 1964 by the poet and critic Randall Jarrell and illustrated by Maurice Sendak before he became the Maurice Sendak of Where the Wild Things Are, although I think you can sort of see Maurice Sendakness here also. Um, it was marketed as a children's book but it was meant to be for both children and adults. It seems to have been widely reviewed um, in the New York Times. The writer Elizabeth Hardwick reviewed it. At that time, she was married to Robert Lowell, who had been Randall Jarrell's roommate at Kenyon. She says of the Bat Poet, the Bat Poet is a haunting little story. It is truly about a bat, and at the same time, truly about a poet. The animal is real as an animal, and the human activity is also real. These lovely verses are the kind a reflective, gentle bat would write if he were the poet Randall Jarrell. Randall Jarrell was born in 1914 in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, he died in 1965 in Chapel Hill. His death was reported as an accident, but many of his friends considered it essentially a suicide. He was walking along a road and was struck by a car, but it was a time when he was also very, very uh, depressed and suicidal. Randall Jarrell was perhaps the most important poet critic of his generation, which is saying something. He was associated with Kenyon College and the agrarian poets, such as John Crow Ransom, Alan Tate, and Robert Penn Warren, although his politics were far to the left of these agrarian poets. Um, and though he was born in Nashville, he did not have a southern drawl or a Tennessee twang, um, having grown up instead in that um, bastion of coastal liberal elites, California. Um, he almost single-handedly rescued Robert Frost's reputation from Robert Frost, and is now mostly known for one poem, the widely anthologized Death of the Ball Turret Gunner, which we will go to later. So the Bat Poet is about a lot of things, but on the surface, it is primarily about what it is like to be a bat and what it is like to become a poet. It turns out there's a fair amount of overlap. The book begins. Once upon a time, there was a bat, a little light brown bat, the color of coffee with cream in it. He looked like a furry mouse with wings. When I'd go in and out of my front door in the daytime, 
I'd look up over my head and see him hanging upside down from the roof of the porch. He and the others hung there in a bunch, all snuggled together with their wings folded fast asleep. Sometimes one of them would wake up for a minute and get in a more comfortable position, and then the others would wriggle around in their sleep till they'd got more comfortable too. When they all moved, it looked as if a fur wave went over them. This is probably the little brown bat, Myotis leucifugus, the mouse-eared fleer of light of the order Chiroptera, the wing hands, the hand wings. It's a fairly straightforward storybook opening. Once upon a time, there was a little, with a few exceptions. There is a narrator who has inserted himself as if to say, I am not the little brown bat, making us all the more suspicious that he is the bat poet, say moi, and the striking image of the fur wave, a precise observation that lets us know we are in the hands of a real writer and of a real writer who has seen a real phenomenon and has observed it from life. I would also say um, that to me, there's something that vibrates a little bit with significance about the porch. Of course, in the South, um, the front porch is a place um, of where the public can come and meet where you can sit and watch the people go by and life go by. But when I hear the word porch and bats, I also think of porches of underworlds and things that might be hanging about the porches. Um, the other thing that strikes me is this fur wave. It's very precise and it reminds me of one of my favorite similes um, from the Odyssey in book 24. Um, where the souls of the suitors who have been slaughtered um, by Odysseus are compared or likened, resembled to bats. And let's see if I can go backwards. Um, I realize that this first part of Book 24 may not be the oldest part of the Odyssey, but I'm going to ignore that. Um, so, and as in the innermost recess of a wondrous cave, bats flit about gibbering when one has fallen off the rock from the chain in which they cling to one another, so the souls went gibbering. There are several points that interest me. I love that it's a wondrous cave. It's a, it's a fantastic, awesome, dazzling, special cave, which makes me think of the wonders of Mammoth Cave. I love that Nycterides, is the modern Greek word also for bat. So that seems to speak pretty directly to me. Um, I'm intrigued by the word chain here. I, when I pronounce Greek, I'm just gonna warn you, I cannot do Erasmian vowels anymore. I've lived 20 years in Greece and I skip the rough breathing. So ormathos, um, the word for chain. And that also makes me think of Plato's Ion where we also have this word chain. Plato's Ion is about poetic inspiration, also about madness and poets and whether poets are sane, um, but it also discusses that inspiration is kind of contagious um, so that in the same manner also the muse inspires men herself and then by means of these inspired persons, the inspiration spreads to others and holds them in a connected chain. This is the same word we had with the chain of bats and it's used to compare this inspiration to um, magnetic stones clicking together. Oh. Um, a brief plot summary of the book. 
As it is the end of summer, the chain of bats move from the porch to their hibernaculum, a nearby barn. The little brown bat doesn't want to leave the porch and so becomes isolated from the chain of bats. I think Elizabeth Hardwick writes, alienation, explanation point. He suffers from insomnia, which for a bat means being awake during the day, when he starts seeing the colorful daylight world and creatures like the chipmunk and hears the mockingbird sing all day long as well as far into the night. I should add here that the mockingbird, Mimus polyglottus, is America's nightingale, the champion singer. We don't have nightingales, a fact that John Crow Ransom remarks on in his poem, Philomela. Not to these shores she came, this other thrace. But he does mention that he had heard them at Oxford. I pernoctated with the Oxford students once, and in the quadrangles, in the cloisters, on the char, precociously knocked at antique doors ajar, fatuously touched the hems of the hierophants. Sick of my dissonance, I went out into Bagley Wood. But I digress. The bat admires the song of the mockingbird who imitates the world in order to chase it away and establish his territory. He always had a peremptory authoritative look as if he were more alive than anything else and wanted everything else to know it. This is also very similar to how he describes Robert Frost. When the mockingbird sings one of his songs, it is called, of course, Ode to a Mockingbird. The poetry of the mockingbird has the little bat all a flutter. The bat wants to try his hand or his hand wing at poetry. He asks the bird, do you suppose a bat could make poems? A bat, the mockingbird said, but then he went on politely. Well, I don't see why not. He couldn't sing them, of course. He simply doesn't have the range. But that's no reason he couldn't make them up. Why, I suppose for bats, a bat's poems would be ideal, which is an idea I'd like you to keep in your head. For bats, a bat's poems would be ideal. When the bat shares a poem with the mockingbird about an owl, the mockingbird gives surprisingly technical field feedback for a children's book. The only other such poetic exegesis I can think of in children's literature is Humpty Dumpty's. Technically, says the mockingbird, it's quite accomplished. The way you change the rhyme scheme is particularly effective. The bat said, is it? And it was clever of you to have the last line two feet short. Two feet short. The next to last line's iambic pentameter, and the last line's iambic trimeter. The bat looked so bewildered that the mockingbird said in a kind voice, an iambic foot has one weak syllable and one strong syllable. The weak one comes first. When you shorten the last line like that, it gets the effect of the night holding its breath. The bat poet composes a poem for his friend, the chipmunk, who is chuffed, and for the mockingbird, who is not. The end of his mockingbird poem is a sort of cross between Yeats and Stevens, um, and uh, this is the last stanza. Now in the moonlight, he sits here and sings, a thrush is singing, then a thrasher, then a jay, then all at once a cat begins meowing. A mockingbird can sound like anything. He imitates the world he drove away so well that for a minute in the moonlight, 
Which one's the mockingbird? Which one's the world? But what he wants to do is to make a poem about bats. If I had one about bats, maybe I could say it to the bats. He does make one, but just as he has perfected it and is prepared to tell it to the bats, he himself becomes lethargic and forgetful and falls into the oblivion of hibernation. The first part of the bats, bat poem goes, a bat is born naked and blind and pale. His mother makes a pocket of her tail and catches him. He clings to her long fur by his thumbs and toes and teeth. And then the mother dances through the night, doubling and looping, soaring, somersaulting. Her baby hangs on underneath. All night in happiness, she hunts and flies. Her high, sharp cries, like shining needlepoints of sound, go out into the night and echoing back tell her what they have touched. She hears how far it is, how big it is, which way it's going. She lives by hearing. Of this poem, the bat poet thinks to himself, it was easier somehow than the other poems. All he had to do was remember what it had been like to be a bat, and every once in a while put in a rhyme. Of course, the poem was actually written by Randall Jarrell, and Randall Jarrell publishes this poem in The New Yorker, and it is a poem in his last book, The Lost World, not by the bat poet, but by Randall Jarrell. Randall Jarrell cannot possibly remember what it had been like to be born upside down, naked, blind, and pale, and to have been caught by his mother as he fell into the world. And I do not think it was a matter of putting in a rhyme either, because that is not how rhymes work. Rhymes work more like echolocation, in fact. Pale calls forth tale, or tale calls, calls forth pale, teeth underneath, and so on. We might look at a few poems about bats and some poems that function like bat poems, things that, that come out of a sort of echolocation, and call out of doubt and darkness things into being um, out of the blankness or the brightness or the blindness or the blackness of the page, all of these words, I think, etymologically related. Bats, unlike mockingbirds, cannot lift themselves into flight off of the ground. Um, this is why if you see a bat in a room, like poor Thomas Nagel, and it's like it's pitiful on the floor, um, they cannot do it. Their wings are too flexible and nimble, which allows them to do all their nifty flight. But in order to get lift, they have to climb to a height and fall into flight. So they fall headlong into kind of nothingness, into blackness, into thin air. Call it negative capability, if you will. Um, Keats's phrase, I realized, in its cluster of letters um, contains a lot of bat words. I am no Anthony Etherin, who I think is in the audience, um, but I did try to fool around with those letters. Um, some of them I use more than once. Um, but you know, ping, a tiny, agile bat, a cave city, um, all of these existing within negative capability. Um, before I look at those poems, though, I would like to briefly talk about rhyme. I, you thought you were going to escape this, but you won't. Um, how rhyme works. Rhyme is itself a kind of simile to unlike things are somehow related. It sets up an equation or an inequality. Rhyme is hyper-local to a language. It's terroir. English gets womb and tomb, breath and death. But English has a problem with love. I mean, what's to rhyme with love? We've got above, dove, of, glove. 
Um, other languages have other pairs of, of words that rhyme. In Greek, for instance, hands and knives rhyme rather conveniently. I think of rhyme as a kind of quantum entanglement. It exerts spooky action at a distance. If you consider slant rhyme, it's only slant when the second rhyme comes into the picture, and then that rhyme skews the rhyme of the first. So they are, they are quantumly um, connected. And if you want dynamic rhymes, if you're a rhymer, if you're born under a rhyming planet, it's good to rhyme across parts of speech, rhyme generic with abstract, um, rhyme monosyllables with polysyllables, and so on. Um, taxonomies of rhyme, I won't do all of this, but um, just to have this up here briefly, perfect or true rhyme, all sounds from the last stressed syllable on match up. Masculine rhyme, it's masculine because of grammatical gender, not gender, gender. I've had arguments with this on Twitter and Facebook. Work and lurk, time, crime. Feminine, also grammatical gender, not gender, gender. Bridal, title, muscle, hustle. Dactylic, see, dactyl is not a gender, I don't think. Vapidly, rapidly. Um, there are lots of kinds of slant rhyme. There are some uh, that are kind of more literary than others. Slant rhyme where the consonants match up but the vowels don't match up. More appropriate for, for the page. Um, if you're doing assonance, which is just the vowels, that's great for a popular song or a performance. Um, but it might not work on the page. And this is because vowels are slippery. My vowels are not your vowels. Vowels change according to generations, according to region, according to class. Um, one of my great examples is Loretta Lynn's coal miner's daughter. Um, going back to Tennessee, she, if you listen to this song, tarred and hard is a perfect rhyme. If you see it on the page, for me, it might sound like tired and hard. It's a slant rhyme, but for her, it is a full rhyme. So if you really want um, a rhyme that will travel, it's better to hitch it to the consonants than to the vowels. But that is neither here nor there. Um, this is one of my favorite bat poems in more than one sense of that word. This is Mind by Richard Wilbur. Mind in its purest play is like some bat that beats about in caverns all alone contriving by a kind of senseless wit not to conclude against a wall of stone. It has no need to falter or explore. Darkly it knows what obstacles are there and so may weave and flitter, flitter dip and soar in perfect courses through the blackest air. And has this simile a like perfection the mind is like a bat, precisely, save that in the very happiest intellection, a graceful error may correct the cave. This is Wilbur in his purest play. We have words like play, wit, happiest, graceful. So even in a poem about darkness, he sparkles and illuminates. Um, Bats, I, I don't know if I've said this yet, but bats are more associated with similes than metaphors for an assortment of reasons. Bats are like other things. So a bat is like a mouse with wings. It's not that a mouse is like a bat without wings. A bat wings are like an umbrella. Um, bats are like tea trays in the sky, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if we look at the rhymes, 
which are all of them gracefully variable. So we'll see largely there across parts of speech, alone and stone, there, air, um, there, save and cave. Bat and wit are both nouns, but there also is a variation there that gives some energy to the poem because they are slant rhymed. Um, the only noun, noun rhyme that is not also slant is perfection and intellection. And there's something nice about the square trueness of that. Um, one of my favorite is save and cave. Save really being accept here, um, but also being a kind of save the bat's about to make a mistake and conclude against a wall of stone, but then it makes, has a save and that rhymes with cave. I love the word conclude which sounds like a bat going splat against a wall, um, but also has this intellectual idea of coming to conclusions. And it's almost as if Wilbur is making a new etymology and that it's not about shutting something off, but it's related to concussion. Uh, I love has this simile a like perfection. That's a wonderful pun. And I like how the poem um, calling forth the rhymes and through the stanzas, which are kind of bigger organs of sound than individual rhymes, um, creates these spaces, these stanzas on the page, which to me are units of thought, but they are also a way of exploring the blank black uh, blackness of the page, the cave of the page. This poem by Emily Dickinson, um, is probably one of the first appearances of the little brown bat um, in literature, although it's one of the commonest in North America. The bat is done with wrinkled wings like fallow article, and not a song pervade his lips or none perceptible. His small umbrella quaintly halved, describing in the air an arc alike inscrutable elate philosopher, deputed from what firmament, of what astute abode, and powered with what malignity, malignity auspiciously withheld to his adroit creator, ascribe no less the praise, beneficent, believe me, his eccentricities. Like most uh, Dickinson poems, this is in common meter, in hymn meter, um, she has a lot of wonky rhymes. My theory about this is that she gets them mostly from hymnals where some of the rhymes are simply not good and instead develops a kind of elaborate theory about them. Um, it's a kind of ars poetica. This bat could well be an ancestor of the bat poet with his coffee with cream in it uh, coat. This bat is done or like a fallow article. Bats are often likened to articles of clothing likened to gloves or old rags or silken sleeves or raggy shawls. In the Asian American poet Paisley Rectal's poem, Bats, they are likened to a stranger's underthings found tossed on the marital bed. Um, so it's also this kind of yellowy brown article. Um, we have these wonderful rhymes. Article sort of rhymes with perceptible, almost imperceptibly so. Air is kind of included in philosopher, reaches out and arrives at philosopher. Abode and withheld um, kind of have a dissonance with them and praise um, extends into eccentricities. So she feels her way through the poem via the rhymes. But there are also other kinds of correspondences. Not all of the correspondences are sounds. 
Um, we have describing in the air, um, which uh, corresponds with ascribe, this idea of writing in the air. Um, and I love her use of this Latinate register of diction. Emily Dickinson's Latin was quite good, and it is usually profitable to look at the etymologies of her Latinate words. Um, the elate philosopher is an elated philosopher, but he is also a philosopher up in the air. I think we could even say which philosopher, since he's describing his circles that are inscrutable. He's very Archimedes-like. The firmament is a strange word for sky, if you think about it, because the sky is not firm. But it's a good word for a bat's sky for the ceiling of a cave, say. And eccentricities looks back, echoes back to arc these imperfect circles where eccentricities um, come from the idea of Ptolemaic orbits where the Earth is not quite at the center, these kind of wonky orbits. So even that eccentricity has a correspondence in arc. Oops, no, no. What is happening? Tech person. All right. I have pressed something wrong. Another uh, poem, we're gonna get a little bit into what I would call bat poetics, as opposed to bat poems. And by that, I mean poems that start in a kind of darkness or um, doubt, and that feel their way often by sound. This poem, I have this because of the umbrellas and the bat wings. <laughs> we grow accustomed to the dark when light is put away, as when the neighbor holds the lamp to witness her goodbye. A moment we uncertain step for newness of the night, then fit our vision to the dark and meet the road erect. And so of larger darknesses, those evenings of the brain when not a moon disclose a sign or star come out within. The bravest grope a little and sometimes hit a tree directly in the forehead. But as they learn to see, either the darkness alters or something in the sight adjusts itself to midnight and life steps almost straight. Um, fabulous things going on with the rhymes. Away is calling out to goodbye. Night and erect are rhyming as if that is almost as if it's nicht and erect. Um, brain, that wonderful Blakeian word, is a solid slant rhyme with within, but again across parts of speech. And you see the one true rhyme here, tree and sea, is right when you get hit directly in the forehead. And then sight and straight, where straight can contains sight, it's almost a sight rhyme, um, and it's almost straight. So there's a lot going on there. And we have the evenings of the brain, which are a kind of Emily Dickinson, dark night of the soul. This is one of my favorite poems. It's also, I, I like how it is kind of almost in conversation with this poem. Um, uh, this is by Theodore Rutke, uh, born in 1980. 08 in Michigan and died in 1963 in Michigan. Um, he writes a lot about the wonderful um, nature in Michigan, which is this land of 10,000 lakes. 
He's the son of a German immigrant who had a um, market greenhouse. Um, so nature is very much with him in the poems. He is also a poet who struggles with mental health issues. Um, I think basically manic depression throughout his life. Um, and this is in a dark time is very much that dark night of the soul. Um, it is a bat poem in the sense that it starts at a point of um, darkness or doubt. It feels its way by this larger sound organ of the stanza. These are variations on the Venus and Adonis stanza of Shakespeare, which is a kind of octave, almost like the first part of a sonnet, um, except there's a variation, those would be A, B, A, B, C, C. Here we have A, B, B, A. C, C. Um, I like them because they're almost like sonnets on steroids. They have a sonnet feeling to them, but they're faster. In a dark time, the eye begins to see. I meet my shadow in the deepening shade. I hear my echo in the echoing wood, a lord of nature weeping to a tree. I live between the heron and the wren, beasts of the hill and serpents of the den. What's madness but nobility of soul at odds with circumstance? The day's on fire. I know the purity of pure despair, my shadow pinned against a sweating wall. That place among the rocks, is it a cave or winding path? The edge is what I have. A steady storm of correspondences, a night flowing with birds, a ragged moon, and in broad day, the midnight come again. A man goes far to find out what he is, death of the self in a long, tearless night, all natural shapes blazing unnatural light. Dark, dark my light, and darker my desire. My soul, like some heat-maddened summer fly, keeps buzzing at the sill. Which eye is I? A fallen man, I climb out of my fear. The mind enters itself, and God the mind, and one is one free in the tearing wind. It's a terrifying poem. <laughs> I mean, I feel batshit crazy reading this poem. Um, uh, and it's a wonderful poem, and you know, it, it wouldn't exist without this form. Uh, Rothke writes, I was, this form, this poem was dictated it's a dictated poem, something given, scarcely mine at all. For about three days before its writing, I felt disembodied, out of time, then the poem virtually wrote itself on a day in summer, 1958. Um, I think back to that ion of Plato and madness and inspiration and that connection here. Um, he has an almost shamanistic experience, which we might call madness, but um, Socrates might call inspiration. Um, and it results in this fantastic poem. Uh, there are some interesting rhymes, shade and wood. We have sea and tree that we had out of Emily Dickinson. Uh, my favorite here is correspondences, which is the largest rhyme word in the poem, and sort of rhymes with out what he, without what he is. And we end with mind and wind, one of those grandfathered in rhymes like love and prove. Um, Rethke had also written a poem about a bat, a kind of children's poem. You know, by day, the, cat, the bat is cousin to the mouse. He likes the attic of an aging house, blah, blah, blah. But when he brushes up against a screen, we are afraid of what our eyes have seen. 
for something is amiss or out of place when mice with wings can wear a human face. And there, I think what he's touching on is the unheimlichness, the uncanniness of the bat. It is something homey, like a mouse, and it lives in the house, and yet it has a human face, and it gives us that unheimlich feeling. It might be weird to look at this as a bat poem when we know this is by a mockingbird. But it does feel like a bat poem to me. It begins in darkness. It feels its way through its form and through its rhyme. There is very little that is visual in the poem. It proceeds by sounds. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farm horse, farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. So everyone knows this poem. Um, we do actually know quite a lot about the writing of this poem. For one thing, although the poem is set at the winter solstice, the darkest evening of the year, it was written in the middle of June 1922, um, roughly at the summer solstice. It was written in one go, almost came to him. Um, uh, he had been working, oh, and it was also written not as evening descends, but as the dawn breaks. Frost had been working productively all night long on his long poem, New Hampshire, mostly in blank verse ramble. It becomes the um, title poem of his book by that name that won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, it's kind of Frost at his worst. Um, he, you know, it's got weird politics in it. He rants against the Ruskies. Um, it's got his faux folksiness. The poem ends, well, if I have to choose one or the other, I choose to be a plain New Hampshire farmer with an income in cash, say a thousand from say a publisher in New York City. It's restful to arrive at a decision and restful just to think about New Hampshire. At present, I am living in Vermont. <laughs> After completing this thing, he turned a page of his workbook and wrote this poem basically without stopping. This is a facsimile of that draft. The first stanza came to him entire as it is. And then he says, that went off so easily. I was tempted into adding difficulty of picking up my three for my one, two, four to go on with in the second stanza. I was amused and scared at what that got me into. Frost takes the Rubiat stanza famous from Edward Fitzgerald's The Rubiette of Omar Khayyam, a po poetry book that would have been in nearly every house with any book of poetry in it in 1922. It was widely, wildly, wildly, wildly popular in the late 1800s, um, and so it would be in everybody's house. Um, so the obvious problem, though, is what to do in the end. So you've got these Link Rubiette stanzas, um, if we remember the Rubiat of Omer Khayyam, here are some of them, you know, a book of verses underneath the bow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I do notice, you notice some rhymes in there. Keep, deep, sleep. 
So the problem comes at the end, once you've linked um, a stanzas and that third line is shooting out to the next stanza and keeps the thing going. You have a chain, an ormathos, as it were. Um, Holmes, in Preface to Poetry, writes, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep. The first two lines of the last stanza come fast and flow beautifully, the crest of the poem's emotion and its music. But then, with success in sight, there comes an awkward and unexpected stumble. He writes, one of the things he tries, is that bid me give the reins a shake, which might have been the fact and the action, but the rhyme is wrong. It's already been used in a previous stanza, and so has the image of the horse shaking his head. Um, but you can see what happens. So he writes that last third stanza with a third line. He's not sure what it's going to be. And then what happens is he realizes, what if I just repeat the third line? So the last line of the poem was written before the second to last line of the poem, even though they are the same line. And that's a wonderfully echoing bat thing to do, to listen to the thing that comes back. And there we have a great poem. We are rounding and around. I know... People might be getting worried, but we're getting there. This is also one of my favorite poems. Much ink has been spilt on this poem. It does strike me as a kind of bat poem, in a sense, um, not by end rhymes, but it does proceed by correspondences of sound. Um, there's very little that is visual in it. Um, Robert Hayden, who was born in 1913 in Detroit and died in 1980 in Ann Arbor, was the first African-American to serve as consultant of poetry, the post that later became the Poet Laureate. Um, also perhaps appropriate in a talk about bat poets, um, he suffered his whole life uh, with very, very poor vision. That is why when you see photographs of him, he has these Coke bottle glasses on, um, but I think does put him towards having a, an affinity for bats. Those winter Sundays. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made bank fire, banked fires blazed. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? I think it is one of the great sermons on love, right up there with Corinthians. Um, obviously, we have this idea of Sundays and fathers and love that puts us in this mind. Um, he was writing about his, his foster father, a man who was very, very supportive of his poetry and career, but I think also um, could be difficult to live with. Just that opening, Sundays too, my father got up early. This is, there's a whole novel right there. It's a lesson also for prose writers of how to write narrative. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Not the cold darkness, the blue-black cold. Then we start hearing the sounds. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made, banked fires blazed. So there's assonance, there's internal rhyme. 
um, there's alliteration with weekday weather. Um, that also is a whole short story, the weekday weather. I also think of the Greek word keros, which can be weather or time. Then we have, and no one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold, splintering, breaking, um, the chronic angers of that house, that suddenly a Greek word in the poem that lifts the register, um, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. That as well is hearkening back to the Sundays too. Those little adverbs that suddenly break open the narrative of the poem. Um, when you hear him read this poem, uh, uh, which you can do on YouTube, he actually says, what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? The quiet vowels at the end and the slight rhyme of love, one of the few rhymes for love, austere and lonely offices, that register of office, we think of um, religious offices, but ultimately, it's this assonance at the end that kind of gets me. Austere offices, the vowel that is awe. We're coming around. This is Randall Jarrell's most famous poem. He became very anxious about it. He thought this was his one bid for remembrance, which is what Robert Frost wrote to Untermeyer immediately having completed upon stopping on woods on a snowy evening. The death of the ball turret gunner. From my mother's sleep, I fell into the state and I hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze. Six miles from earth, loosed from its dream of flight, I woke to black flack and the nightmare fighters. When I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose. Gerald who served in the Army, Army Air Forces provided the following explanatory note. A ball turret was a plexiglass sphere set into the belly of a B-17 or B-24 inhabited by two 50-something caliber machine guns and one man, a short, small man. When this gunner tracked with his machine guns, a fighter attacking his bomber from below, he revolved with the turret hunched upside down in his little sphere and he looked like the fetus in the womb the fighters which attacked him were armed with cannon, firing explosive shells, and the hose was a steam hose. This is one of a handful of poems to have its own Wikipedia entry. Um, it is in the company of Lake Isle of Innisfree, and this be the verse. Um, so poets sometimes grow to hate their successes, uh, even as they are often fond of their failures. It's an epigram epitaph of a type Simonides might re recognize, the dead speak in the first person to us, the future reader or the passerby, and it invokes a relationship with the state. We might think of some of Hausmann's um, epitaphs, epitaph on an army of mercenaries, or here dead we lie because we did not choose. Um, it's five lines, which feels epigrammatic. Um, I might point out that Randall Jarrell's dissertation was on Hausmann, so he might have been thinking of that. Soundwise, froze, calls out to hose, as, as it were, we have black flack and nightmare fighters. Um, Jarrell had wanted, uh, he had volunteered for the army, he had wanted to become a pilot but failed the motion sickness test. Eventually his job was to operate a celestial navigation tower. Celestial navigator is as poetic a job title as they come, 
and to teach people to fly at night, well, that's the job of the critic. Um, to Alan Tate, he wrote, what I do is run a tower that lets people do celestial navigation on the ground in a tower about 40 feet high, a fuselage like the front of a bomber is hung, and the navigator, sometimes pilots and bombardiers too, sits in it and navigates by shooting with his sextant the stars that are in a star dome above his head. We move them pretty much as a planetarium operator does. One trainer in a year certainly saves five or six bombers and their crew through improved night flight skills. It's not my favorite poem. Um, I think it's got a lot of shock value that um, it's kind of a one trick pony. You read it over and over again. I think the shock kind of wears off. Um, but spending time with the bat poet and its gentle animal poems has given me a little insight into this harsh epigram and into the anxiety that Jarrell had about it. The gunner, after all, was born mid-air. He falls into the state. He flies at night. The fur is, of course, the fur-lined flyer suit, but it is also very mammalian. He is upside down. He clings to a larger flying thing which has a belly. In the note, Randall is keen to point out that he is upside down. While Randall probably was not thinking of a bat poet analogy consciously when he wrote this, I feel sure it is present. His poem, Bats, which is the poem the bat poet composes for his fellow bats in their chain of fellowship, is almost a lullaby and stands directly opposite this violent abortion of innocence by the state military industrial complex. It almost seems to undo, to call back, to recall this poem Gerald had been very anxious about the fame of this poem. When he reads the bat poem on a YouTube uh, video, you can hear a reading he gave at the 92nd Street Y in April of 1963. Um, it's before the huge depression that comes on towards his 50th birthday and a depression that is brought on by JFK's assassination on November 22nd. I think the 60th anniversary of that is two days from today. Um, he's really pleased in this um, video to talk about his new poems, the poems that will make up The Lost World, the last book. He mentions that there are no men in the last world, this last book. There are only animals, women, often middle-aged women, and children. His quip about this is he had killed off all the men in his early war poems. He's excited to tell the audience about the eccentricities and strange facts of the bat, which are yet all true. A bat is born naked and blind and pale. His mother makes a pocket of her tail and catches him. He clings to her long fur by his thumbs and toes and teeth. And then the mother dances through the night, doubling and looping, soaring, somersaulting. Her baby hangs on underneath. All night in happiness, she hunts and flies. Her high, sharp cries like shining needle points of sound go out into the night and echoing back, tell her what they have touched. She hears how far it is, how big it is, which way it's going. She lives by hearing. The mother eats the moths and the gnats she catches in full flight. In full flight, her baby drinks the milk she makes him in moonlight or starlight in mid-air, their single shadow printed on the moon or fluttering across the stars 
whirls on all night at daybreak. The tired mother bat flats, flaps home to a rafter. The others all are there. They hang themselves up by their toes. They wrap themselves in their brown wings, bunched upside down. They sleep in air. Their sharp ears, their sharp teeth, their quick, sharp faces are dull and slow and mild. All the bright day as the mother sleeps, she folds her wings around her sleeping child. In this animal fable of a talk, I guess I've been fluttering around in inscrutable arcs about what I mean by what it is to be like a bat poet, what it is like to be a bat poet. A bat poet, to achieve flight, falls unknowing headlong into the blankness, the blindness, the blackness. The bat poet lets sound do the thinking, feeling forward by rhymes and other correspondences, etymologies, perhaps even by stanzas. A bat poem is often not particularly visual or full of outlandish images, but is rich in sounds and echoes. Bats are communal rather than solitary. Rather than staking out territory of dazzling originality, it is not of so much interest to them. They are rather linked in a magnetic chain of tradition and are interested in conveying the shapes, hefts, and textures of the world and their experience of it to an audience, listeners, of creatures to whom they are linked in fellow feeling. All children's books are about going to bed, as a poet has written once. The bat poet never gets to share his bat poem with his fellow bats. Unlike the mockingbird, a solitary genius of the romantic type, the song isn't enough for him. He wants to put in words for the bats what it is like to be a bat. But on that porch to oblivion and lethe, he becomes sleepy and the poem is forgotten. It's a deeply melancholy book, maybe about artistic failure or the limits of art or the limits of the audience. Yet perhaps poetry wins out at all. The bat poet is at least able to share his poem with the chipmunk. The chipmunk is a bit confused. So you bats sleep all day and fly all night and see with your ears and sleep upside down and eat while you're flying and drink while you're flying and turn somersaults in midair with your baby hanging on and, and it's, it's, it's really queer. The bat poet says, did you like the poem? Oh, of course, except I forgot it was a poem. I just kept thinking how queer it must be to be a bat. The bat said, no, it's not queer, it's wonderful.